before you could actually go and put gas in your car, you used to have to have an attendant here in the United States put gas in your car. There's a story about all these people that were in line for this young attendant, and he's putting gas in the car um, because it was a holiday weekend and everybody was just fueling up. And this pastor was in line too, and he, he wasn't headed anywhere, just needed to get gas. And, and he's waiting patiently, and the attendant sees him and knows him, and, and he kind of apologizes that there's so many people and that he waits to wait so long. And finally, he gets the opportunity. The attendant walks up to the window, and he says, I'm sorry, Pastor. It seems that people just wait till the last minute to, before they, uh, I mean, wait, they wait till the last minute to get ready before they go on a long journey. And the pastor smiles and he said, it's the same in my business. Uh, in other words, it, people wait till the last minute to prepare for their death. We don't like talking about death. Death isn't a fun thing. Uh, matter of fact, it's, it's morbid. It creates these feelings of uh, almost like a shadow over us we don't want to think about. But the reality is, is we're all going to die. We just don't know when. Um, matter of fact, I was speaking with my insurance agent some time ago, and we were talking about different things in the future and different plans, and, and he made this comment just offhand. He said, you know, it's interesting, whenever we're talking about the future, people don't think they need this coverage or that coverage because they always believe that the future is never going to have any problems. Almost always. He said, it's across the board. We all think that the future is going to be great, and I don't need to pay for those things because that's not going to happen. Or really, the reality is, we hope it doesn't happen. But the fact is, we're all going to die, every one of us. And we don't know when that day is going to come. I mean, even being out on the road today reminds me of uh, when I was a boy. And, and I had to encounter death at a very young age. My father passed away when I was four years old. And then uh, as I grew up, I had a group of friends that I hung around, a small little neighborhood. You know, the, the neighbor kids all come and play. And one of my neighborhood friends, one of my best friends, his name was Jake. And uh, one day I, I hear a report that his dad had passed away. And, and what had happened was, is he was on his way home, he was shopping, it's Christmas Eve, he had his three-year-old daughter in the truck with him, he, he comes across the intersection, and an 18-wheeler runs a red light, smashes into the truck, and just, he, he sees the truck, grabs his daughter, throws her to the floor, saves her life, and he dies in the process. And his funeral was on the day after Christmas, which was his oldest child's birthday. And you just realize, death's coming to every one of us. We're all going to die. I mean, just like we had a report uh, just the other night of uh, some of you are familiar with uh, Tenalian Bible Camp. It's a mission kind of uh, outpost that we support that reaches Native Alaskans. Um, and they have to fly in there. Well, uh, just this past week, there was a family, um, actually a, a 25-year-old pilot. He was flying with a missionary friend of his, 45 years old. His two children, 14 and 13, were on the plane flying out of Port Allsworth when their plane went right down in the lake, killing everyone on board. And it's rocked the Port Allsworth community. And it's just a reminder, another reminder to me, that we're all going to die. Every single one of us. So knowing that, why don't we plan? Why don't we, we plan? I mean, why don't we try to live now so that we know how to die well? See, when we think about our death, it helps us understand how we can live our life in the here and now. How do you want to be remembered? What legacy do you want to leave behind? I've been to a lot of funerals. Being a pastor, and, and even as a young boy, my family was always, uh, my grandparents were getting to that age when they were reading the newspaper, met checking the obituaries to see which of their friends had passed away. And they would go to different funerals, and we would always be with our grandparents and finding ourselves in different places. And it just was a constant reminder to me that we're all going to die. Now, what does that have to do with our subject matter for today? Well, we've been going through the life of Joseph, who's a refugee. 
He was a refugee. He was forced to be a domestic servant. We've seen his story, and it's a phenomenal story of a guy that endures terrible evil from his family. Then he is then sold into slavery. He works his way up um, as a slave, then is falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit, put in prison, and then he languishes there, ends up becoming the head of the prison. And finally, he is released because of he had spoken to some very influential people and helped them in a time of trouble. And then he becomes the prime minister of all of Egypt and in charge of everyone. So here's this refugee who came with nothing. And he's now exalted to the highest place in the land. And we, we see a reconciliation that occurred between he and his brothers. He had 11 brothers who had done him harm. But then these brothers end up, uh, there becomes a, a point and a period of, of reconciliation that goes on. And now he's, bringing, he's brought his father, we saw last week, he brought his father who was in, in Canaan and brought him now to Egypt. Now his father is dying. And the star of today's episode is Jacob. Jacob is getting ready to die, and he is giving and laying out for us an example how to die well. Or he's showing us an example of a life well lived. Now, this isn't a man that was perfect. This is a man who had done some pretty despicable stuff in his life, and yet he still shows us, I mean, God shows us through him how to not only die well, but live well, and how to leave a legacy to bless our children and our grandchildren in such a way that they might follow God in the way that we ourselves have. So today I'd like us to listen in, to zoom in to this, this wonderful passage as we see and try to understand how um, we can live a life that is pleasing in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, speak to us. Draw us close to yourself. Lord, as we are come into, um, as we think about our death, Lord, help us to see you through all of this, that you are the one who conquered death, that gave us hope beyond this world and how we might live accordingly as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, of a heavenly city. Be with us and speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's jump right in. And we're going to be walking through not just the passage that Hannah read for us in um, Genesis 49. We're actually going to back up into Genesis chapter 48 as we seek what it means to uh, live well and die well. So we're in Genesis 48. I'm going to look at verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. The word there is terminally ill. He's dying. Now, how many of you have been ever called to the the bedside of a a loved one who was passing away? Anybody here? It can be a pretty traumatic thing, watching them breathe their last. And yet he's coming. His dad, though, is is somewhat, uh, I mean, he still has his faculties, but he's dying. And, And they call for Joseph. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim who are in their teens. And it was told Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I'll make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now, before we go any further, I want us to see a few things. First of all, this is my first point. By looking at Jacob's life, we can see that death and dying are going to happen. Death and dying are going to happen. This is a no-brainer. But again, it's something that we don't plan for very often. But knowing that it's coming, we should prepare. You know Christmas is coming. You need to prepare for it. Some of you will wait till Christmas Eve. But we need to prepare for it. There are certain things we prepare for. 
And here he's saying we need to prepare. Death and dying are going to happen. Now when death comes into the picture, these, death has a way of focusing us on what's important. We don't worry about the silly things anymore. The first thing that we can see is that it calls us to focus on our faith. On our faith. That's the first thing that we can see. Because really at the end of life, what do we have except God? God is the only one that's really, truly there. We can see our lives. I have this amazing book in my, my office. It's called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners by a guy named Herbert Lockyer. And he goes through all these world figures. Uh, kings, queens, princes, celebrities, philosophers, world rulers. And he records their last words. I mean, what do you want your last words to be? What do you want your last words to be? You know, it's interesting, uh, in our founding fathers, you have John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were very close friends for a very uh, short amount of time, actually for many years. And then when John Adams became president, that alienated him and Thomas Jefferson. They didn't speak for many, many years. And then Jefferson became president, and they further didn't speak. And it wasn't until near the end of their lives that through a mutual friend, they started writing to one another and wrote to one another for the last, like, I want to say 12 years of their lives. And it's interesting to know that they both died the same day. July 4th, 1826. It's interesting. These founding fathers both died on the 4th of July as everyone's celebrating. What's fascinating, though, is what John Adams said at the very last. Do you know what his last words were? Adams still, I mean, Jefferson still lives. Because there was such a competition between them. He's known then, his last words are Jefferson. It's still this competition I haven't been able to let go of. What, is your, what are your last words going to be? What do you want it to be? Some of those that I was reading in this book were sad. Just really sad last words. Some of them were terrifying and horrifying. Matter of fact, a few of them I wanted to highlight for you. One was Philip III, king of France. As he is dying, he says this, What an account I shall have to give to God, how I should like to live otherwise than I have lived. That's pretty terrifying. Or Charles IX, also king of France in whose reign many people were slaughtered, he shrieked out. This very powerful man is crying out in terror. Nurse, nurse, what murder, what blood. I have done wrong. God, pardon me. Or Rousseau's daughter-in-law, she left a sad lament. I regret my life. Or Charles Churchill, who died in 1764 and was known for his loose living. He was a poet, very famous in his day. He was conscience-stricken at death and said, What a fool I have been. What are you going to say at death? Go Bears? I'm amazed at just the trivial nature. I mean, our world has sought to minimize death. I have seen the minimalization of death in in probably the most greatest place that I've seen it is in social media. Social media trivializes death. People just rest in peace. Oh, you're such a great person. You're looking down from us from heaven. That's bad theology. This is bad theology. It might make you feel good, but that's not what the Scripture says. And the Scripture is the testimony that we are to look at. Matter of fact, you know what happens at death? This is why it's terrifying. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read this. That just as it is appointed for man to die once, not many times, die once. You have one life. One. One life. That's it. No more. There's not a reincarnation. There is not of that. That's not what Scripture says. God says that you have one life. There is only one God, and He has given us one life. 
Not many lives to try to figure this out. Not reincarnated again and again and again. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, people remember their... Have you ever heard people, by the way, say that? The people that do often believe in that? They're like, years ago in my past life, I was a prince. Or I was a princess. No one's, you know, I was the guy cleaning up cow manure. You don't ever see those people. They always have this dream of they're like this famous person. And I don't really see this, but Scripture says that you have one life. One. That's it. It's done. One life. And after that, you are going to step into the presence of Almighty God. He who made you, and He made you for Himself. And He's going to ask you one question. That's it. One. Did you believe in the, my Son whom I have sent? That's the question. That's it. Did you or did you not believe? And that question will be validated by your life. Because you can say one thing and do another. You can say, I believe in God. Your life has no showing of that. That's why I'm amazed at people. People are like, oh, they're in heaven. Why would they be in heaven? They cared not for God one iota on earth. They never sought to pray to God. They didn't ever want to be around God's people. So you're telling me that someone who never had a desire for God is going to spend eternity in his presence? That's ludicrous. C.S. Lewis said there's only two people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those that God says to them, thy will be done. That's it. That's why you're going to see that song on the way to hell, I mean, on the way to hell, I did it my way. Frank Sinatra's blaring in in their ears. I'm astonished at this, and I see this all the time. Constantly, when someone dies, people are like, oh, you're looking down on us. Where do you get this stuff? Not from Scripture. It's just this moral therapeutic deity that we have in our world today that everyone can agree on, that condemns no one, doesn't expect anything from anyone, who's there to always accept and always hug. That's not the God of the Scripture. Yes, God is the God of love. God is the one of forgiveness, and He's the God of hope, but He's also the holy God who must judge sin and is the God of wrath. There's both and, and they don't contradict in the person of God ever. But we have to understand that this is the only precious life that we have. And there's only one way of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. And I don't care how good you are. Your goodness will never outweigh your badness. Never. You can be the holy pope. You can be the Dalai Lama. You can be Mother Teresa. And none of those people get into the sight of God because of their righteous deeds. Matter of fact, in in the book of Romans chapter 3, this is what we read right here. None is righteous. How many are righteous? One. Maybe one. None. None. Ever. Zero. No, not one. No one understands. No one truly seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even, not even one. That's us. All of us are in the same boat and it's leaking. And the only way that we can get to heaven is not by whether or not we repent the end of death. I I, I mean, right as we die. I had a guy the other day that was telling me, he said, man, when I die, I just gotta, I I gotta repent at the end. That's poor theology. That's not biblical at all. You don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done. He, on the cross, he paid for your sins, past, present, and the future. That's why we don't have him on the cross anymore. Because he died once, forever, for always. His, his sacrifice was so great and so awesome to take care of all of it. He doesn't need to die again and again and again. 
and that he rose from the dead. That shows that what he said was true and real and that death has no power over him because he tasted death for us. He died our death that we can have his life. So we have to understand that at the end of life, we're talking about death. That's faith, first and foremost. Don't try to make one of those deathbed confessions. What is that? That you'll get in on a technicality? God knows your heart. God knows. See, death is meant to focus us. Not just on God, but also focuses on our family. So we see our faith and we also see our family. Now notice, when Jacob is dying, they call for who? He calls for Joseph, his favorite son. And then he calls his 12 sons. And he speaks to them because at death, family is what becomes very, very important. Now, in our world today, there's been an assault on the family like never before. We have all these different alternative families and people leaving their families behind and they're frustrated with their families. And and yeah, there might be reasons for that. And there's a whole host of reasons why. But our families are there for our I mean, are, are meant for our good. And that's where we form our identity. We're going to get to that in a moment. But family is hugely important. As, been, as it has been said, there has been no one ever on their deathbed that said, I wish I would have been more famous. I wish I would have had more success. I wish I would have had, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that they're dying, they go, man, I wish I had more Snapchat followers. More Instagram. Man, I wish I had more Facebook friends. No one ever says that. You don't, you don't call for your Facebook friends for likes on your deathbed, taking a selfie as you're dying. You don't do that. At least I hope you don't do that. See, that's where we call those are, that, we, that we have those close, most intimate bonds with. It's our family. Jacob understood that. He takes time to bless each of his sons to say goodbye. The closest relationships we have are within one's own family. It's hard to say goodbye to a loved one. You ever had that? Have you ever tried to say goodbye or do you get a chance to say goodbye? I was four when my father passed away. One of my worst memories was the fact that I wasn't allowed to go into his room before he died. It's haunted me. My brother and my sister got to say goodbye. My father didn't want him to see and remember him in the condition I was in. He lost a lot of weight. There's a song that I sing sometimes to my kids at night. And just because my father, I only had him for four years, and I barely remember that, and his life, impact on my life is huge. There's a song, and it goes, When I was young, my dad would say, Come on, son, let's go out and play. It only seems like yesterday. And he says, when I'd climb up the closet shelf, when I was all by myself, grab his hat and fix the brim, pretending I was him. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how many tears I cried, No matter how many years go by, I still can't say goodbye. He goes to the end of it. He talks about being an old man, and he says, I walk by the corner salvage store, 
Saw a hat like my daddy wore. Tried it on and I looked in. Still trying to be like him. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how many years go by, no matter how many tears I cried, I still can't say goodbye. Can't say goodbye. I never get that chance. But I want to know, I want my children to know. No matter what happens to me, if I get out of the car and I get in a car accident, that I love them. And I want them to see in my life the legacy of faith that I've been given. Now, some of you have had horrific situations with your families. And just because that affected you doesn't mean that that has to pass on to the next generation. You can pass on a great legacy. That shows what, va- what we value. Faith, family, and then the one that we really don't like to think about is our funeral. Now, it sounds weird, I know. But look at Genesis 49, 29 through 33. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre. In the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. What's he doing? He's giving instructions about his death, what's to happen about his death. You know, that's, that's a practical thing that we can do, is if we're getting ready to die, we need to tell our families to know what to do if we die. Where are you going to be buried? What are the arrangements? Notice also that they bury him. They don't burn him. Now, I know we've talked about cremation. But, I mean, I've talked about cremation before, and I know people have had their relatives cremated. But as Christians, you see something historically different about how we treat the body, especially Jews and Christians, in that they honor the body. That's why it's been buried, not cremated. Now, it's not an unforgivable sin or anything like that. Scripture doesn't say anything about it, but you do see this practice without, throughout church history. Matter of fact, when I was in India and I was talking, I was talking about the tracks in a graveyard, and I, someone said, you know, many of them have, it's new to them because they have become Christians. In their traditions, they would burn, but once they become Christians, they bury. It's how they honor the body because of the resurrection from the dead. But he gives them instructions concerning his funeral and he wants, how he wants to be remembered. And where does he want to be buried? He wants to be buried back in the promised land. It's appointing it to the future, how to die well. And he's living, leaving these instructions to his family. I mean, what's your funeral going to be like? Have you ever thought about that? What's your funeral going to be like? I had this one guy in my church in Chicago. His name was Bert. Uh, Bert Johnson. He was this big Norwegian guy. He loved kids and youth ministry, and he spent his life in telling kids uh, about who Jesus is. He had, he'd worked at Christian camps, and he was always supporting this one Christian camp and always trying to get me to go and, and bring kids. And, and he, he knew one day, I mean, his death was coming, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he squeezed at me. He says, I want you to preach my funeral, and I want you to give it to him. I want you to preach it. I want you to preach of the glories of Jesus and the hope that is to come. Your funeral is not to be a, a, a despondent time, but to point people to the hope that's in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've been to some pretty depressing funerals in my life. Some pretty depressing ones out there. Because usually those are the funerals without hope. But the funerals that I've had the most fun, if you can have fun at a funeral, are ones where it's a celebration. They knew where they were going. And they knew where they were going to see him again. It wasn't farewell. It was goodbye for now. 
until we see each other again. But what's going to be said at your funeral? What songs are going to be sung? sung? Please don't let it be wind beneath my wings. Please don't sing dumb songs. Sing songs that are about the eternal God that we worship to point people to the glories of Christ. Not something that's in the pop, you know, the pop 100 or whatever it is. Please don't trivialize it. Point people to Jesus and your death. Think about that. It's not fun to think about, but he's, he's preparing for his funeral. He's giving us an example on how to die well. Now, notice what else Jacob does. He reflects on the lessons that have been learned. The lessons that have been learned. Look at Genesis 48, 15. When Jacob blesses Joseph, he says, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. I love that little phrase there. He's been my shepherd all my life. In other words, he's been there for me. He's taught me how much. He's been there when I was messing up. He's been there through the good times. He's been there for the bad. He's fed me. He's sustained me. He's shown love to me. He's showing and conveying the lessons that he's learned in his life to the next generation. Do you know that's part of what we are to do with our lives? Retell the stories about how God has blessed us and passed them on to the next generation. Why? Because these help form and show our our identity. They teach us who we are. That's the next point. They teach us who we are. Can you bring that up? Teach us who we are. They do. That's what these stories show us. This past year at Thanksgiving, I was with my family, and somewhere along the line, I've become one of the older saints of my family. I don't know when that happened, but I don't like it. Um, and now I have all these kids coming to me and asking me questions about stupid stuff that my siblings did when they were kids. You ever have that when you get together, your family and you rehearse, oh, when my uncle did this, or in my family, there's always a story told about how my uncle Bill used to pick up outhouses and turn them over with people in them and all this weird stuff. And they rehearse all these funny stories about things that happened. And you have this. I mean, for us, uh, they want to know about when my sister was a teenager and she was out of the house with her friend and someone was tapping on the glass and making scary noises and they were so freaked out they called the police and the police showed up and there was this guy in the bushes and they said, come out with your hands up! And it was my brother. He came out like terrified because he was messing with his sister. And we have these stories we tell, right? You have them. Think about the stories that you have in your family that you guys tell again and again and again of all the crazy stuff that you guys have done, right? Why? Why do we tell these stories? Because they help formulate who we are. They teach us about who we are. You know, there was a story that came out in CNN this past week, fascinating story, about Elliott County in Kentucky. For the first time this past election, in 144 years, they voted Republican. Okay? In 144 years. And they tell a story. The, the fascinating thing was not that they voted Republican, but it was the stories of the people on why they had voted Democratic so long. Um, and I'm not getting into the political parties or anything like that. I'm just citing it for, for, for uh, sermon's sake. And in, this mess, in it, they, the interview, one said, As a child, my daddy took me to the voting booth and said, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but just so you know, our family's democratic. And that teaches them something, right? Now, I mean, my kids, I remember being in the car when, uh, when baseball was going on. They go, Daddy, are we Cubs fans or Sox fans? So they want to know. Why? Because that forces identity. Think about it. For those that have been in America for a longer period of time, they might know this a bit more. But are you a Ford or Chevrolet person? If you grew up in the farmland like I did, it was either International or John Deere. Right? We have these little things that we go back and forth. Are you uh, Mac, Apple or, or piece of garbage? I mean, <laughs> Microsoft. Scott Brown's not here. No, I'm just kidding. 
Um, but you have these, right? These little, little things that we do. Why do we tell them? I mean, because these are things that help formulate who we are. They give us meaning. Think about the sports team you, you root for. Why do you root for that team? Some of you are like, I have no clue why. Usually it's because a family member took you to a game or that family member rooted for that or what have you. I mean, in my family, I've been trying to get my wife to convert to root for a Bears fan. She can't do it. My wife grew up as a Dolphins fan and as a University of Miami Hurricanes fan, which I think are criminals. But um, we have, it was a joke. It was a joke. And we've gone back and forth. It is funny that when we got married, she hanged this University of Miami ornament on the tree. And the team that she hated growing up was Florida State, which her brother had an ornament of Florida State. And so he, though, ended up going to the University of Miami, so she's like, I can get rid of that awful ornament. Well, her husband, unbeknownst to her, got the ornament his first year of marriage and hung it on the tree. And I hate Florida State, but it was fun watching my wife get angry about that. But then suddenly, suddenly, magically, the Florida State accidentally got broken. <laughs> now these are, why do we tell these stories? Because these convey meaning to us, Right? Now, the question is, is not about our sports team or what political party we vote for or what, or what uh, maker model of car we drive. But are you telling the story of your faith? Are you communicating that, that it's the most precious thing to you? We communicate what's precious, which so amazes me that people never talk about God. How can you talk about the newest Avengers movie or talk about this YouTube video and not talk about God who was worth far more than that. Why? Why can we talk about everything else and not that? Because that should be our reason for being. That's where we communicate our meaning. It helps formulate our identity about who we are and how to learn to walk with God. And that then trains us on how we seek God. See, J- Jacob was relaying to his sons how God had shown himself and proved himself faithful over time. That's why he says, God Almighty, in verse 3 of 48, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And then he says to Joseph, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called the name of their brothers and their inheritance. It's pretty amazing. He's passing on this heritage. He's teaching them how to seek God, training them how to seek God. And you know where to help do that. And the greatest way that we do that is by showing ourselves and talking about how God has interacted with us. As the scripture says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is older, he will not depart from it. You know, I've seen this happen a lot with many young people. When they go through, they, they're taught about the faith, and then they want exploring different things, and usually they're teens and early 20s, and then something happens. They get married or have a child. Something happens that causes them to rethink life. And they go back to the foundation that they were taught, and that's God. We're to train up a child, to teach them, and show them through our lives. Train our children what it means to seek to know God. God gave marriage to bring forth, as he wills, godly children, as we see in the book of Malachi. Can your children say that God is the object and pursuit of your life? Can your children, or will your children, when you have them, Lord willing, if you don't now, say that you walk with God? See, why does God give us this example of Jacob? Why do we have this recorded as Holy Scripture? 
There are many that have died. We don't see the last word, their last words. I think that these, or this truth, this episode is meant to help give us a template for us to copy. A template for us to copy. See, we can bless our children. We are wired for blessing. We can teach them the ways of God, and we can train them to seek God. And we need to think about ways not only to live well, but to die well and pass the faith on to the next generation. What does the book of Deuteronomy say in Deuteronomy chapter 6? I don't have this on the board. But after making one of the greatest theological statements in Scripture, that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One of the greatest statements in, in the history of Israel. Then what does he say? And you shall teach them to your children. And he goes through, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you leave for the day, teach them. Teach them, pass them on to the next generation. This is a sacred trust that we've been given, we who are, that, whom God has allowed to be parents. This is a template for us to copy how we can bless the next generation. So we see Jacob showing us death and dying are going to happen. Lessons are, that we have learned need to be passed on. But, and this is the, probably the greatest one, there are blessings that can be bestowed. Blessings that can be bestowed. We don't talk about blessing very much in our culture. Some of you might come from cultures where blessing is pretty normal. Uh, In this culture, it was very normal. And uh, I want to get to what a blessing is in a moment. But we see through Scripture that blessing is vitally important. God had blessed Abraham. He had blessed Isaac, which was Jacob's father. And Jacob, he had blessed him. But Jacob had actually, uh, not just from a heavenly standpoint, but there was a blessing that was to come from his father Isaac that he actually stole. That was to be for his brother Esau. Blessing, I mean, what is blessing? And why does the scripture even talk about it? Well, blessing is, according to Gary Smalley and John Trent, in their book on this exact subject, said this, blessing, a family blessing, begins with a meaningful touching. It's when you put your hand on them. You see that with Jacob putting his right hand, he switches the hands of the brothers. The younger is getting the greater blessing. And he, but he's still touching them to showing them that they are blessed. They are unique. They are blessed in his sight. And it continues with a spoken message of high value. I mean, have you ever had that happen to you? Even when you were a kid, you may not have had it happen in a long time. When your parents said something about you that was unique to you, that meant a lot to you? Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But I knew as a kid there were certain things that uh, my grandfather would introduce me to different people when I was a little boy, and I'd be tagging along with him. He'd say, this is my daughter's son. This is George's boy. This is, and he'd say these things about me and help formulate who I am. And I saw that I was valued, or he's talented in this. I mean, my grandfather, it's funny what you go through in your family, but uh, as a kid, you always have some food you eat or some team you root for that the family never, ever forgets about. Do you have that in your family, or am I just crazy? Because in my family, as a kid, I used to eat cream peas all the time, as a little kid, okay? To this day, I, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> you know, I, I stepped into 40 last year, and my grandfather, who's 94 years old, still remembers that I like cream peas, and he tells that to the family, to my wife. The guy's 94 years old. I mean, I'm in my 40s for crying out loud, and he's still saying that. And, and it's just interesting. Um, he's remembering, but he's, it, it just reminds me that people remember things about you. Here, he's showing that you are highly valued. There's something special about you. And, it, and this is a message that pictures a special future for the individual being blessed and one that is based on an active commitment to see that blessing come to pass. Let me ask you this. Have you ever blessed your kids? Have you ever blessed anybody? It's, it doesn't just have to be your kids. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. 
Have you ever blessed someone? Have you ever been blessed? Have you ever wanted to be blessed? I think many of us, I think we're all wired for blessing. And I think many of us feel that hole in our lives. Where we want that parent, usually a parent, to say something about us that shows us that we are valued. You see that all the time, right? I was a youth pastor for about six years in Chicago. And I remember one night on my back porch at 11 o'clock at night after youth group was over, I had 17 young men standing there. And my back porch was crowded and packed because I was talking about what it means to be a man. Why were they there? Not one of them had a father in the house. Not one. They were desperate to know what it means to be a man. And if they don't have anyone to teach them, they're going to learn it from something. And it's usually from television, Netflix, YouTube, some bad example. We have to make sure that we are blessing the generation that is coming behind us, showing them that meaningful touch. Now, what do these blessings bestow? What does that mean to bestow? Give. See, a blessing is an acknowledgement that you are a part of the family. Jacob doesn't bless strangers. He blesses those that are a part of his family. It shows that we belong and that we are a valued part of the family. Some of you have never known that. Some of you have been abused and gone through horrific things, and it has scarred you. The blessing is not meant to scar you, but it's meant to build you up and show that you are loved and valued in a healthy way. But it shows that we're part of his family and that they're a part of our family and that they are valued. It also provides accountability for our actions, by the way. Accountability for our actions. Notice something. I want us to flip over to chapter 49 for a moment. Jacob's blessing his 12 sons. He starts off in verse 3 with Reuben. You are my firstborn. My might and the first first fruits of my strength. Going well so far. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent power. Reuben, you're an amazing guy. But, verse 4, unstable is water. You shall not have preeminence. Water, especially the ocean, to an ancient, uh, a person in ancient Israel, was considered to be the place of chaos. Unstable is water, saying, You're chaotic. You've done something that's horrific. You shall not have preeminence. I'm not giving that right to you. Because why? Because what you did several years ago, you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He's referring to an incident where Reuben had slept with his father's second-tier wife, Bilhah. And Jacob found out about it and they never addressed it, at least that we know of. In recorded scripture, you don't see them addressing it. So you imagine it was a very difficult time when you were at family dinners. You ever had that conflict that developed or something happened where a relative had done something and you just don't want to talk about it and it feels awkward to be in the room with them? You ever had that? I have. Maybe I'm just a little odd here. But here I can imagine they never addressed it. Reuben had been trying to gain his father's approval all these years. We don't ever see him asking for forgiveness or seeking reconciliation. We see him trying to earn his favor and he doesn't get it. And he's now has said at the end of his life, you're not going to have preeminence because of what you've done. You slept with her. That was wrong. So we understand there's accountability for our actions. Our stuff is not always forgotten, that we've, what we've done. We say people forgive and forget. I mean, yes, we forgive, but we always don't forget. And there are still consequences to our actions. So we understand that there are going to be consequences for what we're going to do. I've had, I've had people come to me in tears saying, I didn't know when they were a teenager. Why did I do this? I've been dealing with this now for 25 years. Why didn't somebody tell me when I was a kid that I would be dealing with it for all this time, that that one choice would affect me forever? 
Now let me tell you something. Someone might have told you. Would you have listened? I mean, we all wish we could go back with the knowledge that we have now, the choices that we made then, but we can't. Here we see that there is an accountability for actions. The blessing helps do that. And not only for Reuben, look at the, in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. See, there's a backstory here that many of us don't, aren't familiar with. But what occurred is that Israel and his, his people, his tribe, had camped near the land of Shechem. And, and Jacob had 12 sons, but he had one daughter. Her name was Dinah. And Dinah went out and interacted with the ladies of the land. When the prince of the land saw her and ended up violating her, he raped her. Now, it was customary in the ancient world, and it's horrific to us today, but it was meant for their protection back then, that a woman often had to marry her rapist. Sounds terrible. But the reason was, is that because she'd had intercourse, many would never marry her. And she would be destitute for the rest of her life, and then further open to other harm, that at least she would have protection. Now, again, to us in our modern era today, that seems to be awful. But then, again, it was meant to protect her. And so the father of uh, the young man who rapes her, who is the king of this city, goes out and approaches. uh, He talks to his son. His son wants to then marry her because he loves her. He likes her a lot anyway. Um, And so they go before the sons of Israel, the the sons of Jacob, to ask for her to be married to him. And then they go even further, hey, why don't, matter of fact, let's just become one people and our men can marry your daughters and then your men can marry our daughters be one people. And so they're angered, but they don't show it. Instead, they say, they put a condition down. They say, okay, we'll do that. We'll become as one people, provided you get circumcised and become like us, because it would be an abomination for us to give our wives to men that are uncircumcised, because that is the sign of the covenant of God upon our lives. So they said, hey, that's easy, easy. We can do that. No problem. So all the men agree to it, and then after they get circumcised, which I can't imagine what that city council meeting was like, by the way. Uh, after they agree to get that done, the third day is they're in recovery, because they're in a lot of pain. Simeon and Levi show up with swords and kill all the men of the city. Kill them all. And so Jacob's saying he was horrified when he found out that they did this, because they were a small group of people. I mean, we see there are about 70 to 75 people when they go into Egypt. They could easily be eliminated by someone else that's out there. He's saying, what are you doing? Not only that, it's disproportionate to the crime. Yes, what was done was awful to your sister, but to deserve the death of all these men who had not done anything to participate in it? Especially under the banner or guise of peace and truth? And you do this? This is awful. And he's saying at the end of her life, he's saying, no, there's a penalty for that. This is what's going to happen to you now. It's kind of a prophecy of sorts, a statement of their life and what's going to happen to them. And then He's already kind of solidifying the trajectory that they themselves have made. So we see that it does provide accountability for our actions. However, there's also the converse is true. It's an affirmation of our good deeds. Look at verse 22. I'm not going to be able to hit highlight all of the 12 sons, but I'm going to highlight kind of the, the, the bigger ones and their blessing. But it's Joseph. And remember, Joseph had been through hell and back. And he had done nothing but good. And now he's, he's, he's actually the leader of all of Egypt. And he is providing for all of Jacob's family. And Jacob blesses him because of the good deeds that he has done and how he's remained steadfast in the midst of trouble. And he says, Joseph is a fruitful bow. 
a bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. He's using poetic language that everyone would have understood at the time, saying that you've remained steadfast in the midst of battle. No matter what's come at you, you've remained steadfast. His bow remained unmoved. His arms remained agile. By the, hands of the, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the, by the almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. In other words, you're going to be blessed. You're going to have many children. Uh, you're going to have a, a blessed life. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. He's affirming what he has done in his life. Can you affirm that which in your children or someone needing to affirm you? Do you need that affirmation? Or can you affirm who your children are and what they have done? Last of all, a blessing is an announcement of our future. It's an announcement of our future. In many ways, a blessing is prophetic. It can be almost like a blessing slightly to a curse, but a blessing for what's going to happen in our future and how God is going to work on our behalf. We see that going on here within uh, the lives of many of Jacob's sons, especially on Judah. Now, Judah hadn't been an angel. He was the fourth son. You had Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and you have now Judah. And Judah receives a very special blessing in verse 8. And remember, he was the one who had been this, become the spokesperson uh, speaking out against his brothers. He was the one that convinced them not to kill Joseph. He'd become the spokesperson and leader of the brothers and was the one who had guaranteed Benjamin's life when they had to take him to Egypt to show to uh, the governor of the land, which was Joseph, before they knew he was Joseph. He was the one who offered up his life for Benjamin's when Benjamin was going to become Joseph's slave. And because of this, Jacob gives his greatest blessing to him in verse 8. I want us to look at this blessing because it's phenomenal and prophetic. In verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, cub from the prey, my son, and have gone, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, this verse is extremely important. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Everybody got all that? A lot of crazy stuff right there. But when we get into it, we find that there are five things that have been said and promised to him. Number one, he will receive praise from his brothers, verse 8. He'll have victory over his enemies, verse 8. He will have preeminence in Israel, and he does. The tribe of Judah grows, uh, outgrows all of the other tribes. And he will have the obedience of the peoples and unusual prosperity in his fields and herds, according to verse 12. But what's fascinating are the words scepter and ruler staff, which indicates ruling authority. Here we see that Judah will rule over the other brothers until Shiloh comes. Now the question is, is who's this character Shiloh? It's not the city of Shiloh. It's spelled different in Hebrew. 
But what he's doing is he's actually giving us a glimpse into the future. Judah will rule over the 11 other tribes until Shiloh comes, who will rule over all of the earth. And under his rule, the entire earth will be blessed. In other words, this is the Messiah. The Messiah will come from Judah. He was promised to come through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and now to his son, Judah. The other tribes would be blessed, but this tribe would be the one through whom the Savior of the world would come. Now, some of us have read through the book of Matthew, and we've read through all the begat, 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 and we can start in Matthew chapter 2. But to a Jew, that was vitally important because it was showing fulfillment of prophecy. Because the Messiah, the, his identity had to be confirmed. He had to be a Galilean. He was called a Nazarene. Out of Egypt I called my son. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born of a virgin. All of these had been foretold in the Old Testament. Every single one of them. And there's a lot more about him. You read Isaiah chapter 53 and it's like you're reading from the Gospels. And these are written hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before the New Testament did. Hundreds of years. So tell me something. If something was written hundreds of years before it comes to pass, what does that tell you? It's prophecy. It's true. And that other things that he said are going to happen. And he's going to come at the end of time and set up his rule and reign. See, under Shiloh's rule, Israel's land would enjoy unusual prosperity. One will be able to tether his donkey to a vine. What does that mean? It means that there's going to be so many of vines that it's impossible to, I mean, possible to damage just one and it's not going to be missed. Vines are a very precious commodity in the ancient world. Another indication of this abundant harvest is that one's garments will be washed in wine. That doesn't sound very cleaning, but what it means is the wine press will be so full after squeezing out the juice from the grapes in the large vats by stamping on them with one's feet that one's clothes will be saturated with grape juice. Moreover, the eyes will be dark from drinking so much wine, and teeth will be as white as milk from drinking from the overflow of the milking herd. In other words, let me just put it in ways that we all understand. You're going to be so blessed and so prosperous that it's going to overflow from you. That's what the passage is saying in layman's terms. That during the time of the Messiah, that there will be so much in abundance that we will be enjoying it forever and ever and ever. That's what he is talking about. It's an announcement of a glorious future. He would be the recipient or the one through whom Shiloh or the Messiah would become, who would be the ruler of all peoples. And under his rule, the entire world will be blessed. It's a cryptic name for God's Messiah. That's pretty phenomenal. That's an amazing heritage. That's an amazing legacy to leave, to say that you would be blessed and your descendants after you would be blessed. I mean, think about that. When you love someone to bless you so much and say that your descendants were going to be uh, responsible for many people coming into the kingdom of God, how about this honor? that your descendant will be the one through whom the whole world will be saved. That's a blessing. Now, what do I want us to leave with today? We've gone through all of our points. We've talked about in the end of a life. Here's this. Number one, the greatest blessing that we've had has been by God himself. We've received the blessing of God. If you were a recipient of God's salvation and you have Jesus as your Savior, you have a great blessing and heritage already for you that you did not earn you have been brought in, adopted into God's kingdom, and now his inheritance is yours. Number one. Number two, you are to bless the next generation. Those who are older, you need to bless the next generation. Now, mothers and fathers, you're both to bless. Mothers help in the self-esteem of a child. Fathers help form the identity of a child. And for whatever reason, God has given a greater task for, in the spiritual leadership and yoke of leadership for the men to lead their families and to make, give them that blessing. And again, not that mothers and grandmothers can't, aunts can, all of them can. But we see this 
weighty responsibility given to these to be husbands and fathers. Now, many of you do not have those. I mean, and we've seen that throughout our world. We know that there is kind of a vacant spot, a vacuum of men that are qualified to lead. But we still have the power to help shape that identity for good or for bad. Hopefully, it's for good. Now, I want to challenge you. This is what I want to challenge you, especially those that are, that are men and fathers. Matter of fact, where are the men and fathers that stand up for a second? I want all those who are fathers to stand, just for a moment. I want to challenge us all during this holiday season. We're entering into holiday season. We're going to be with our families. And I know that many of us have never blessed our kids. I want to challenge you to bless your sons and your daughters, to bless them with a legacy, to bless them to teach the next generation, to tell them about your walk with God and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I'm praying this for myself. I want to do this with my own kids. But to lay your hand upon them, to put your arm around them and say, I want to tell you how much I love you and I want to give you a blessing from God. And put your hand on them and say, Lord, I pray that this child, and I, and I bless you in the name of the Lord, and I pray that your future, and bless them and say, your future will be prosperous, that you will direct people. And see what, see what God shows you about their life. And lay hands on them and convey that meaning because they want you to do so. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me the one thing that they regret and miss in their life, and it's not always, but often, I wish I could go back and say to my father and speak to them and have them speak to me in a way that was loving and not abusive. Some of you have had those. Some of you have had fathers that never said anything. Some of you have been abused, but now receive a blessing from God. And men, I want you to bless your children. If you have that opportunity, bless them. Bless them over this holiday season. Announce that future, affirm them in who they are, and commit them to God. You can be seated. But I want, us, I want to pray for these men, I want to pray for us all, that we can be a blessing, and that God might use us. And again, you might be in a relationship, or you may not have, uh, maybe you're a single mom, maybe you have some, your child, that father's not around, bless that child. You can bless them, or have that grandparent bless them. Take them to them. Ask your, your parent, if they're still alive, or grandparent, to bless your children. But seek that blessing in this holiday season that God would touch them and show them love. Right now, I'm going to ask God to bless us and give us the courage to bless others. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, you've given such a great example in the life of Jacob. And we see at the end of a life what it means to be a follower of you. Lord, help us to pass on a a godly heritage, a godly legacy. And many in this room, Lord, they think of how badly they've blown it and messed it up. But Lord, we know that with you there is forgiveness. And while we still have breath in our lungs, we have time to bless the next generation. We may not be able to go back and rectify the mistakes of our past, but we can start now to begin to live and leave a godly heritage. Even though if our son or daughter may not want to speak with us, or maybe we're a son or daughter who doesn't want to speak to our parents, Lord, may we find forgiveness. May there be reconciliation. And may we find common ground to bless one another whether it's the parent blessing the child or even the child blessing the parent uh, for what they've meant to them and how much they felt loved or maybe it's a, a statement of forgiveness, whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that you give us the courage and the wherewithal necessary to take those steps of faith, even though it might be awkward. Lord, help us to do so for the glory of your name, to bless the generation that comes behind us because we know that they are hungry to receive our blessing. Lord, we've been wired for it. Direct us, empower us, and show us how that we might do it effectively. And Lord, I pray that we all might walk closer with you. We can't take and bless our children and bless them to directions that we ourselves have not yet taken. So Lord, please help us to learn what it means to walk with you, not as a burden, but as a great uh, communion 
great intimacy that might be fostered through knowing you and being known by you. That you are the God who came not to condemn, but to give us life. And you have shown the depth of your love and that life for us by giving your son, who died on the cross for our sins, who took our dishonor, took our shame, and gave us his honor, and removed our shame from us, and help, us, help put us in, a, in an honorable place with God. So direct us, empower us, be with us, and use us for the glory, honor, and praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.